Welcome to Have You Heard, an IDF podcast. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, a nonprofit organization that improves the diagnosis, treatment, and quality of life of people affected by primary immunodeficiency. People living with PI are the zebras of the medical world, and the IDF community is one big zebra herd. Today, we will be exploring genetic counseling and its importance for those living with genetic conditions like severe combined immunodeficiency, or SCID. We will be talking to an expert in the field of genetic counseling and addressing questions that might be helpful for your journey. All right, let's get started. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode, Genetic Counseling, part of the Skid Compass series. I'm your host, John Boyle. Receiving advice or support after diagnosis of a genetic condition can be overwhelming for families. Beyond the primary medical care team, it's hard to know where to turn sometimes. One resource for information about the condition and for counseling related to living with the uncertainties and the worry and the concern about you or your child is genetic counseling. Genetic counselors work alongside your medical team to advise individuals and families affected by genetic disorders like severe combined immune deficiency or SCID. Members of the SCID community can schedule appointments with a genetic counselor to gain information and resources about the genetics of SCID as well as developments and treatment options. Whether you're planning to have more children, caring for a child, or managing your own health, a genetic counselor may be able to help you with issues such as evaluation, testing, counseling, and even research. Our guest today is Dr. Barbara Biesecker. Dr. Biesecker is a Distinguished Fellow with the Research Triangle Institute, or RTI International. She has more than 35 years of experience in genetic counseling, clinical care, graduate education, and research. Along with her research in the Early Czech Newborn Screening Initiative, she's an expert in social and behavioral outcomes of genomics, perceptions, and communication of uncertainties and related decisional factors. Welcome, Dr. Biesecker. We are so pleased to have you with us here today. Thank you very much, John. It's a privilege to be here. Well, let's start out with a few of the basics. What is genetic counseling and what do genetic counselors really do? I'm glad you asked that question, John, because I think there's sort of a public um, recognition of genetic counseling as a profession that um, is involved in helping pregnant women uh, make decisions about whether or not they want testing in their pregnancy. And while that is one area where genetic counselors tend to work, it's not the only one. And, and at the beginning of the profession, um, we sort of grew up alongside the availability of amniocentesis, which I think has sort of cemented that impression. But at the same time, we were working with um, special needs families and kids in pediatrics from the very beginning. And back in those days, of course, there was no genetic testing to offer them. Um, the physicians would do physical exams and try and make diagnosis for the families. And the counselors, um, because they didn't have any testing to offer people, they were very um, well-schooled in how to help families cope with some of the challenges of their kids and adapt to the circumstances. Um, and from there, it's branched out into a lot of different subspecialties. Well, um, if someone is being introduced to the fact that they might need genetic counseling and, and they're questioning 
it. You know, it might be a very new uh, concept to them. From your side, uh, when someone is, again, just being presented with this, this kind of concept, who do you think benefits the most from genetic counseling? How do you explain that, you know, this is worthwhile to go into uh, to learn more from someone who you probably don't know, as opposed to maybe the doctor that you have worked with? Yeah, that's a very good question, because we genetic counselors really augment the primary care team, right? And skid families in particular have a very carefully selected expert team that they're working with around their child's diagnosis and treatment. Um, and a genetic counselor might be part of that team or might not be part of that team. And if they aren't, um, the parents might be offered the opportunity to meet with one. So to answer your question, um, genetic counselors are experts in genetics. They have to understand how genetic testing works and how to explain it to people. They're also counselors at heart. And because that was the origins of the profession and of my training, I have a lot of um, counseling training and I've trained counselors in counseling skills so that um, we work with families to try and in the early stages of their journey, put one foot in front of the other. And as they go through time, they may have much more specific questions for us about how to make decisions about having additional kids in the future. And of course, we don't tell them how to make decisions, but we coach them through a process they may want to go to to make that decision for themselves. Um, they also may be still grieving um, over the trauma of what they've endured in the early life of their child. We can help with that. Um, they may also be grappling with other people's reaction to their child. There's a lot of things that go along with the trauma of having a very sick child. And genetic counselors are generally trained to help people manage that. Our basic, we're not psychotherapists. So people don't come to us with mental health problems, but they come to us with the kind of responses that any of us would have given a crisis or a difficult circumstance or just a hard adjustment. And well-trained genetic counselors help people find their own resources. They already have the way forward, but they just can't tap into it. So we're sort of a bridge to help them realize ways they might find to cope a little bit more effectively or actually over time adapt to a pretty hard circumstance they didn't think they could ever adapt to. And those are really important things, but really it's the, it's the parents themselves that make those moves and make those adjustments. The counselors just facilitate it. Well, I, <laughs> that's a lot. And I, uh, you know, in thinking about the crisis, as you mentioned, you know, that, you know, some parents may describe or that as counselors, you may, you may recognize it, but they might not. Uh, no, to have a resource such as that is, uh, is something else. Well, let's say that the person involved, the parent or the patient themselves, uh, it's been suggested that they do go and see a genetic counselor. I'm sure there's some variety here, but how in general does someone go and set up an appointment with genetic counselor? Is this something that you have to have a referral from your doctor before uh, doing it? Or is, uh, is there some variation? Can you tell, tell us a little bit about maybe some of the common pathways that someone might all of a sudden uh, be led to your doorstep? Sure. In the early days, most likely the primary medical team would be able to facilitate a genetic counseling appointment. And again, beyond the early trauma and crisis, I don't know if that's the most useful time. Families probably differ 
uh, about that. Maybe a little bit later on that they're ready to sit down and talk to somebody. Your own physician can help you find a genetic counselor. And of course, because of the complex healthcare systems these days, um, probably your own physician is helpful in making sure that you're within service or you're more likely to get reimbursed by your insurance company if you go a certain route. You can also just go to the National Society of Genetic Counselors website and they'll match you to a genetic counselor. You can even say what your, you know, what condition your child has and what you're interested in getting from a genetic counseling session. And because of the pandemic and the fact that now genetic counseling is provided mostly virtually, it's widely accessible to people. Well, you did mention uh, someone who, again, might be kind of at that crisis point uh, versus maybe going and seeking this at a point later. Just curious, uh, when folks are being referred over to a genetic counselor in a time of maybe you know, heightened, heightened emotion and things along those lines, do you find that they are able to absorb all of the information at that point as well as you might like? Is there variation or, or is there, you know, do sometimes do they need to get a little bit more distance uh, in? Kind of curious about what you've experienced or what you've seen. That's a fantastic question. It, it depicts how well you understand people and how they process things. Um, none of us. Um, when we're traumatized or living through a crisis can absorb information the way we usually can um, because our resources are set up to help us just get through what's a difficult time. So um, there's a lot of strategies in crisis counseling about how to help people. Um, probably one of the first ones is find out what the most important thing is that a family wants. And early in the journey, it's probably a diagnosis, um, which a counselor is not gonna be able to supply. But if a diagnosis has been made, the counselor can reinforce what it is um, and what it may be and answer some questions about that. Um, I would say that in crisis counseling, counselors don't or if they're well-trained, know that it's not effective to give people much information and they wait till the family asks um, rather than offering information to people. And if I have somebody who's really eager to try and master something in the early stages, I'll write it down. Or if I have an information sheet, I'll give it to somebody so that they can go back and look at it. It's not a time for teaching, but you also don't wanna disrespect the fact that the parents have questions and they want to know that there are people out there who eventually can help them find the information. That is enormously uh, helpful because again, you know, there obviously probably can be some very different times and, and people want one piece of information answered or they've been told to go to a counselor and suggest that it might be helpful. And uh, I, I think that that is, uh, it's just an interesting kind of dynamic to chew on. Uh, but as, as we do, and as you talk about, you know, the fact that, again, maybe if they're in crisis, they may only be absorbing a certain amount um, necessarily, or, you know, there might need to be more. Can you talk about maybe what are some more kind of typical scenarios? If someone is probably coming for what might be just a single session, it might be reasonably simple uh, to a certain degree. What does that look like versus a little bit of the, you know, how might you introduce complex topics? Uh, do you do 
multiple sessions in a lot of cases? Where do the majority tend to fall, would you say? That's a good question. I would say it's probably, if we keep um, considering the skid journey, it's probably where parents have reached a point where they're beginning to seriously consider whether to have another child. And I would argue that they don't come to see a genetic counselor because they don't understand their chances because by then most parents know how it's inherited in their family and what it means for upcoming, upcoming children. Um, they probably know that from their medical team or from the, you know, the Facebook pages, the reading they do. Most, most parents are very savvy about getting to the bottom of how it was inherited. If not a genetic counselor, certainly somebody who can help them with that. But I'd say that the majority of parents are um, of an affected child are very well schooled in the condition as, as best they can be. And they come to see a counselor not to get an answer from the counselor about whether they should have more children or when they should have more children, but to talk through what are the considerations. And most people, when they sit down with the counselor, aren't there for the counselor to say, this is how it's inherited. This is what your chances are. This is how we can test for it. It is true that some counselors, if they don't first listen, they make a, an error in judgment and presume that that's why people are there. So the most important thing is that genetic counseling begins with a search about what the parents are interested in, what they want. Um, and they're not gonna come to a genetic counselor before they've ever discussed it among themselves. So my first question is, what are you thinking now? Do you, are you on the same page about this? Do you have a different perspective now? Listen to them, feed that information back to them and then sort of walk them forward about to help them figure out how stuck they are. Cause some people come they're pretty close to thinking they're ready to make a decision and they just kind of need a final encouragement over the finish line and other people come because they're stuck, stuck. And perhaps one parent really is ready to go forward with another child and the other isn't or whatever the scenario. So I don't have expectations of where families are at. I open it up for the discussion. So that would be, I think, the most common reason people would seek out a genetic counselor. And would you say that that these sessions, uh, because people think about, you know, their doctor's offices and they're, they're trying to, you know, run them in and out reasonably quickly in some cases, uh, do these tend to be 15 minutes, half an hour, an hour? Does it vary or is there a more common Time frame that, you know, just based on the field and the expectations and the possible complexity that someone who's thinking they might do this, that they might expect uh, to be sitting down with this person and talking about these issues. You ask excellent questions. So I grew up in academic positions. So I've been in the circumstance where universities and uh, medical institutes allow me to take as long as I need with my patient. And so I've had a very privileged opportunity and most of my sessions last at least an hour. Um, most things are complicated and people need that time for processing it. That is not usual care because most genetic counselors work in healthcare systems. So prenatal visits tend to be short and fast. And those are visits about offering people screening and pregnancy and helping them decide if they wanna go forward. 
Um, if you have a family history of a condition, the sessions almost always last longer. 15 minutes wouldn't even begin to understand what somebody was asking for. So I would say on average, even in a billing laden medical health care system, you could at least count on having half an hour to 45 minutes with a counselor. But there are still a lot of genetic counselors who work in university hospitals who can spend a lot of time with people. They can even invite them back for second, third, fourth visits. If you really need that, you can pursue it. Sometimes um, resources like the Genetic Alliance knows where you can have more extended genetic counseling. That's a good resource. Well, from all that you've described, I mean, I, I can't imagine anyone with a, a rare or chronic inherited uh, condition wouldn't want to spend some quality time uh, you know, with a genetic counselor. But I imagine there, there are some you know, challenges uh, that the profession faces. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what some of those limitations might be in terms of access or just barriers or anything else, um, because you don't tend to see a genetic counselor, you know, sitting at your CVS or Walgreens on the corner. Can you tell us a little bit about mm -hmm. that side of things? Sure. There's about, um, I think we're growing to about over 5,000 genetic counselors in the country now. So that's still a pretty small profession. So that's one of the issues is there's only so many of us and we're now split across a lot of subspecialties. So genetic counselors work in prenatal, as I've mentioned, pediatrics, they work in cardiology. There's a lot of cancer genetic counselors because there are inherited forms of cancer. So we're spread across, which makes it a little harder, but I wouldn't let that deter anybody who's interested and needs to see a counselor. I would say that, um, I am been a genetic counselor for all of my career and for much of the existence of the profession. And I am what, what I would call um, the greatest advocate for our profession and what it can be and its sharpest critic. And the thing I'm most critical of um, and that I have a very hard time with is that there, there is a model of counseling out there where I don't really know why, but I have a theory. My theory is they love genetics so much and they want to help other people love it so much that when people sit down with them, they just can't help themselves by jumping in to explain how things are inherited. Because of course the underlying assumption is that's why they're there to see them. And it's almost never why a patient I've seen has ever come to see me. Occasionally, yes. Usually you can figure it out on the internet. Even if you don't really understand genetics, you can look up inheritance patterns. So it isn't what parents need, I don't think, in most cases. And so I've trained um, hundreds of genetic counselors in a very, um, a very serious counseling model about what does that information mean to people what sort of challenges do they have as a result of that information and what are they struggling with and what resources do they have to help themselves? Because again, most people we see are not without their own resources. They just can't tap into them. They're just are obstacles along the way or they're afraid or they disagree. There are life challenges that all of us deal with, but theirs are extreme in the, in the circumstances. So it's not hard to train counselors to be able to help people really effectively. Well, I think that that is a great point for us to pause. We're going to take a quick break here, and we'll talk more in just a few moments. No 
matter where you are along your journey, IDF wants to help you manage living with primary immunodeficiency, or PI. As a community-empowered organization, IDF can provide you with support, education, and resources to help you cope with a wide variety of issues related to PI, including physical and mental health, insurance, and relationships. For more information, please visit www.primaryimmune.org. Welcome back. Dr. Barbara Biesecker is here with us discussing all about genetic counseling. Now that we've talked about the basics and the benefits of genetic counseling, I'd like to address a few questions that are connected to SCID. And some of these questions were sent in from SCID parents themselves. So to start off, after newborn screening detects an abnormal screen for SCID, is genetic counseling automatic or do families have to request a consultation or how does that tend to work with SCID or something very much like SCID? That's an excellent question. Um, What's tricky here is been demonstrated in the COVID pandemic, which is that we don't have as organized a public health system as we would all like to have. Um, If we did, um, I think our best example of public health in genetics is newborn screening. So it's sort of the best that it gets, but not all newborn screening programs have access to genetic counselors. So the true answer is it kind of depends which state you live in, where the newborn screening test is done. Some are staffed. I used to do newborn screening um, at the University of Michigan years ago. So back in the old days, there were still genetic counselors involved, but they aren't always. You should be able to talk to a genetic counselor right after a result is returned, or hopefully the person who's returning that result is a genetic counselor, but I won't pretend it happens all the time. And it's very fair when you get a result from newborn screening to request a meeting with a genetic counselor and hopefully whoever returned the result to you can help you find one. Well, maybe I should have started with this or woven this in. When you get results of a newborn screening test, that's not actually a diagnosis at that point, but you are all of a sudden going through a diagnostic odyssey. Correct. You know, is it that they oftentimes are, you have to wait for the actual diagnosis before uh, likely a genetic counselor is brought in or is it oh, before? Yeah. It, how, how would you say that, that goes? Because newborn screening is different than how their ways that people might be found are? Yeah, that's a very good question. And unfortunately, I don't think it's standardized. So I can't say they're just one way, but I'll try and explain the circumstance, which is that physicians who work with skid patients are perfectly comfortable in this uncomfortable space of having a newborn screening result that is not yet figured out because that's why they went into medicine and they want to figure it out, right? So the physicians right then and there are your best, the physician experts are your best, your best contact. The genetic counselors aren't involved in resolving the diagnosis. So if there's a genetic counselor on the team they will be offered to the family as somebody to just support them during that period of uncertainty. Um, Also, a genetic counselor may be the one returning the results, again, depending on the newborn screening lab, and they would be willing to stay on the phone with somebody and help them to understand what it means to get a result that isn't certain yet. So they should have that training to do that. And if you don't get 
offered an opportunity to talk to a counsel, you could request one at that time. It often won't happen because what parents want, if I can speak for them, um, more than anything is finality. Does the child have it or not? And if not, do they have something else? And that comes from the diagnostic team. So I think in all fairness, most parents want the, they want the medical specialists first and foremost at that point in time. And when a diagnosis is made and they're trying to figure out what that means for their family and their child, that may be a time when a genetic counselor is particularly helpful. And let me go off of that to a time maybe a little bit farther down the line. So that's when they're dealing with maybe the initial diagnosis. Well, let's say a family has one child with skid already and they're maybe thinking about having more children uh, and they're worrying of course about the genetic component of skid. In terms of the different people who might be involved or that they might check in with, um, genetic counselor, uh, their kind of primary medical provider, fertility experts, with those issues of family expansion and genetics, what do you find is maybe the most um, beneficial order of operations, if you will, if there is such a thing? Or what would you say that people do to help get the sort of clarity and understanding and to the point you said finality, if that's uh, possible, as they deal with, of course, what is a, uh, you know, a, can be a difficult decision? Yeah. Um, a good challenging question because um, how people adapt to this information, um, people's time frame, and you know prepare for asking themselves a question about having um, another child uh, varies tremendously according to how sick their first child is and their family composition and relationships and all sorts of things. So that could happen at any time after a, a first child is born. But I would say that genetic counselors are probably rarely, rarely involved in the early news of the first child and the crisis that's really attended to by the medical team. If you wanted to reach out to a genetic counselor, the best place to go is um, the NIH because they have a team that specializes in immune deficiencies and they have four genetic counselors there, um, a couple of whom are extremely well experienced and no skid and would talk with parents on the telephone. Um, and if that's hard to find, places like the Genetic Alliance can help you find those expert counselors. Cause you really wanna talk with somebody who knows skid. I think that's really important. Beyond that early diagnosis and adjusting to what this is gonna mean for your child, most any adult or pediatric genetic counselor can um, try and answer your questions for you. And they can be found in, again, in, you just have to get a, a request, make a request and find a place where you can sit down and talk, talk it through with people. But there's no real rules or um, standards to when people want to or when they find it beneficial. I think it's really just up to individual families. Um, well, I appreciate that. Uh, and I do want to follow up. You mentioned you know, the possibility of uh, talking with one of these counselors on the telephone. At this point in the game, which is, you know, and, and things are changing here quite a bit, is telehealth, telemedicine with genetic counseling 
possible, the norm, uh, you know, how does that come in, especially as we're dealing in this pandemic and then likely post-pandemic period, uh, you know, where some of the norms have shifted? Great question. Um, it's almost all virtual now, except for in hospital circumstances and things like that. And genetic counseling flipped to virtual counseling very quickly um, because there was no alternative. I actually did a review of all the studies of trials of genetic counseling um, a couple years ago with 57 different studies. And most of them were done in the cancer genetics arena, but a lot of them compared, the vast majority of them compared in-person genetic counseling to telephone counseling, because we didn't have Zoom yet. Um, some, some, some virtual counseling, but mostly telephone. And the outcomes were equivalent um, in, in all cases in every study. So we have evidence that what genetic counselors do can be done virtually and be as effective. That is uh, helpful to know, especially for those who are, you know, grappling with, if you will, ongoing care and, and these issues that, again, if it's genetic, it's, well, you're going to be dealing with it uh, for quite a long time. But to that point, do genetic counseling relationships, you know, we think about, you know, SCID, uh, you know, our knowledge about SCID evolving and there's new things to learn. Do people with conditions like SCID uh, get follow-up? with genetic counselors, or does it tend to be, if you will, more of a one and done situation or as is needed? So again, very, very poignant question. So for instance, at the NIH and their SCID team, they follow people over time. And mostly um, they see patients who are enrolled in one of the studies that they're offering. But those are the kind of committed genetic counselors who would make themselves available to SCID families over time, even if they weren't enrolled in a study. Um, they're salaried professionals paid by the federal government. They're experts in their field, and they are people who um, know the entire journey of SCID. They know the variety of different types. They can do the nuances. So I think those are extremely helpful resources. If you don't and aren't looking for skid expertise per se. You don't need people who know the, the very specific details about different ways kids are affected, et cetera. A genetic counselor in pediatrics or adult genetics could suit you very well and be available to you um, whenever you wanted. Some people really only have a one-time desire to talk to somebody. And again, it's usually around a decision point about having a larger family or um, whatever. Sometimes you'll see a genetic counselor when people are actually making treatment decisions, but I think these treatment teams have gotten so good that they help people make, make the decisions at that point in time. Um, but genetic counselors can help with that, help them talk out loud the sort of pros and cons. So they're usually at decision points. There are times occasionally, and I would say not so, much in um, SCID, but maybe other kinds of conditions we deal with, where things are getting worse over time in ways that really um, affect the quality of life for the child. And that's often a time that people will come for genetic counseling to really search their souls about whether there's anything they can do differently or how they sort of adjust as they see their child losing skills that, that he or she already had is a very hard thing to go through. 
Well, Dr. Biesecker, uh, I think we're just about coming to the end of this, but this has, I think, been a real kind of eye-opening opportunity for people to get maybe a deeper understanding of genetic counseling and you know, a field that they might have seen somewhat narrowly. Uh, again, back to the original concept of people in prenatal testing. Can you just talk to us for a moment about you know, what has drawn you to this field? Uh, you know, you mentioned that you've been doing this for some time. Uh, it seems like it's well suited to you. What, what are your thoughts about just existing within uh, this universe where you are having to have some really interesting and difficult conversations, which at the same time, I'm sure there's a certain amount of um, maybe relief or maybe just emotional connection that's forged from it. So thanks for that question. Um, I will preface what I'm going to say with um, emerging literature that lots of genetic counselors have compassion fatigue. They're using that phrase rather than burnout because it's not exactly the same thing, but it, it does take a toll working with um, people who are suffering at various times in their life. Um, and I've had some really very, very dramatic you know, experiences with families over the years myself. Um, but my take on it is um, quite different and it's very hard to put into words, but we care for people who come with human resources. They're, they're not special in a certain way, they're just people. And they've been handed something generally unexpected, very challenging, threatening, um, disruptive to their lives. And when you have the privilege of working with people over time or intersecting with people at various stages along the way, you see what people are capable of. And it's nothing I would sit down and tell somebody, oh, well, you know, you'll feel better in a month or you'll be surprised at yourself in a year. I would never, ever, ever make that assumption about somebody. But people discover their own journey in their own way and in their own time. And what many people I've worked with, advocacy and support groups for many, many years, and what I've heard over and over again across conditions is, I'm a different person as a result of what's happened to me. I wouldn't trade this for anything. My life is richer. I've been able to give back to other people in ways I don't think I ever would have before. And the list goes on and on and on. And I feel so privileged. I could have lived an entire life and not really fully understood what people are capable of and what they can make of what initially seems like an insurmountable problem. And it, it is just the biggest gift of my life, frankly. Well, Dr. B. Sucker, I think that that is an amazing point to leave on. And so thank you so much for sharing that with us, your expertise, uh, your perspective on genetic counseling and for uh, giving our audience hopefully a little bit of a, a deeper understanding of this world of which maybe they have had some exposure and if not, well, maybe they'll want to explore it. Thank you. And many thanks to all of our listeners for being with us here today. We hope that you'll join us for more podcast episodes like this in the future as we explore the topics that mean the most to you. Until then, all of us here at IDF want to wish you good health and strength. And remember, you're never alone. There are always people out there who want to help. We all just have to find each other. 
This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. The Skid Compass series is supported by a grant through the Health Resources and Service Administration, or HRSA, an agency of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. If you like our show and want to learn more, please subscribe to this podcast so future episodes will be sent to your device automatically. To learn more about primary immunodeficiency and the PI community, please visit the IDF website at www.primaryimmune.org. For more information on SCID, visit www.skidcompass.org. And if you have a question you would like answered, email us at idf at primaryimmune.org. Thanks for tuning in.